Good afternoon, dear ladies and gentlemen. It's my pleasure to introduce uh, Judith Rauhofer to you. Judith Rauhofer is a senior lecturer in IT law at the University of Edinburgh in the UK and an associate director of the Center for Studies of Intellectual Property and Technology Law at the University of Edinburgh. She is a researcher primarily focusing on data protection, privacy law, IT law, et cetera. So the field um, I'm in as well. That's one of the reasons why we have been knowing each other now for quite some time. And she is particularly interested in exploring the tensions between privacy as an individual right as, and as a common good. The main reason why she is here today is, however, not so much her specific expertise, although we will certainly talk a little bit about data protection and IT law, but primarily the fact that she teaches on campus and off campus, uh, in, in particular online distance learning programs in the field on data protection and, and privacy and EU data protection law and information technology law for many years. Most recently, she was in Taelia program director for an LLM in information technology law and an LLM in innovation technology and the law, one on campus, one off campus. Her roots are German. She is a qualified Rechtsanwalt, lawyer in Germany, and a solicitor in England and Wales. So she has some practical expertise as well and has worked in legal practice for several years, advising clients in particular in media, new media, e-commerce, data protection, IT law, etc. cetera. Uh, she's active, obviously, in scientific organizations, in particular in the British and Irish Law, Education and Technology Association, she works for the Open Rights Group and the Foundation for Information Policy Research and is a founding editor of the European Data Protection Law Review, which is one of the leading journals in the field um, um, co-founded by, by her. Um, Judith, uh, you were lucky um, not to have the obligation to teach in the last year because you were on sabbatical um, in between 2019 and 2020. I don't know whether this was luck at all because I would assume that uh, you did not really consume too much of your, uh, of your time for, for writing, uh, but mainly needed to adapt to the overall situation uh, that was rather challenging. Still, um, it would be interesting to hear from you at the beginning. Um, how you how how your academic life uh, took place during your sabbatical in under these circumstances? Thank you, thank you, Nicolas. Again, before I start, thank you very much for inviting me. This is a really good, you know, great thing you're doing. Um, yes, I think my my academic life was probably very much like the academic life of anybody else at the moment. It basically uh, happened a lot in my own study at home. Our university closed, I think, a week before the UK government imposed a lockdown in March. Um, they closed all on campus and my um, colleagues did three weeks of online teaching at the time, I think, before the semester closed out. Uh, I myself was actually in South Africa when the storm started to hit. Uh, I was there on a, on a research visit and I was supposed to organize a workshop. I made it back into the UK just under the wire and uh, I've spent, yeah, pretty much my days in the, uh, in the study ever since because we were under not as strict a lockdown as, um, as maybe countries like Italy or Spain were. We were allowed to go out to go shopping and to, to exercise, but we were yeah. not actually allowed to do anything else. So yeah, it, it was, you know, me and my computer and yeah. my cat, actually. Yeah. Yeah. And how is the situation right now? So students, are, are they allowed to enter campus again now? Or? No, um, our, our university is still 
pretty much closed. We only just, uh, the Scottish Government has a, a sort of a four-phase plan and we are only in phase two, which basically means that a non-essential work environment still need to remain closed and working from home is the rule, uh, it's the default. We were actually allowed into the building last week for one day to uh, pick up things that we needed, which was great because I had a massive bunch of articles and books that I was supposed to read during my sabbatical, but which I never got the chance to liberate, shall we say. So I just mm -hmm. stormed in there and, and came out with that. Uh, the students have not yet got access. We are about to open up some research buildings, particular with uh, those that include labs, so that uh, students who need to do lab-based work uh, can actually return, and researchers who need to do lab-based work. But as far as the social sciences and the humanities are concerned, I think we are looking at September. Yeah. And it's unclear yet what's going to happen in September, or do you have a clear strategy already? Well, probably would. I mean, we, we, we are we are told we are going to proceed a so-called hybrid teaching strategy, mm -hmm. which essentially means that we will probably open the majority of our teaching online, but we are. Um, basically, um, you know, encouraged to provide some sort of on-campus experience for those students who can join us on campus. The insecurity or the uncertainty that we were suffering here, of course, is that we have no idea how many students that would be. It probably will differ between undergraduate, which is largely coming from inside the UK, and postgraduate, where a university like Edinburgh actually recruits mostly from abroad. Um, and the question really is, I think our priority at the moment is to provide some sort of on-campus um, experience for first-year undergraduates and for postgraduates, probably largely because they, they, that is the time when you need to build some student community. Um, you know, so those students who are here for the second year, they have their infrastructure already, they have their circle of friends, they can probably cope with it better. But I think new students are also very keen. They come to Edinburgh for the experience as well. And, you know, not being able to, to get much of that is definitely a, a downside of, of this coming year, I think. Yeah, I, I, I think one of, the, one of the specific circumstances a university like Edinburgh is in is that the undergraduate students are mainly home students coming from the UK and the postgraduate yeah. studies or, or, uh, or LLM students are mainly coming from abroad. Is, is, is this true? First question? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah no, it, it definitely is. I mean, I think I, I, I mean, I teach mostly postgrad and uh, I mean, obviously online anyway, our online degrees are specifically conceived so that they can be accessed from all over the world. And that is indeed, I think, you know, their unique selling point. Uh, but even on campus, we have, I think every year I have maybe maximum two or three students from the UK on my on-campus degrees. Um, but the majority of students come really from all over. Yeah. So it's going to be a question of whether they feel comfortable joining us in the UK at the moment. Um, yeah. Uh, which which would be interesting to see, but I mean, the, the uh, you have been working with online classes now for many, many years, and Edinburgh is one of the leading institutions in the field, as far as I see it, in offering um, LLMs that can be studied remotely. Um, 
and and I would assume that you will possibly even profit from the situation because you have so much experience. Uh, well, that was my idea, actually. I think when we discussed how we would go forward, uh, my idea was actually very much like, you know, we have so much experience, we could actually go out and say, listen, you know, we've done this for a decade and more. We, we can actually offer you a really good online, online training. Um, but because I think it is a very specific uh, aspect of the law school, and even within the law school, it is a very specific uh, area, subject area. So the, the online degrees are in IT law, in um, medical law, and uh, we, we have something called a, um, a general law, but basically what you do then is you study the courses from the other online programs. So at the moment, the online uh, degrees that we offer are actually still very much in the ITIP area, um, an IP one we have as well. So it's it's IPIP, ITIP medical law largely. So even if you study for the general LLM, the majority of your courses will come from that area. There are there is also an international commercial LLM that is online. So that broadens the whole thing. But if you were thinking of an LLM, a general LLM on campus, I think you're also thinking of things like, I don't know, legal history, criminal law subjects, you know, and, and we don't have that. But um, so we have, we have a, I think the experience that we have is very specific uh, to certain areas of law and is also specific in a way to the law school and some other schools, uh, education, for instance, has a really good online program. But because it is not university-wide, I think the university's uh, idea really was that they would ideally like to get students on campus as much as possible, and they didn't want to just put everything online. And this is partly why we are encouraged to provide an online hybrid, online on-campus hybrid model. Yeah, but um, as you've been doing this now so for so many years in your in, in our field of expertise, so IT, IP, et cetera, mm -hmm. and some medical law also, um, <laughs> How, how, I mean, in your self-assessment, how successful were you in addressing students? And, and I mean, although, as I must say, the, the fees are remarkably high, right? So I, if I'm not mistaken, it's something like 21,000 pounds or similar, right? That, yes. you, that you ask students to pay for, for an LLM that is purely mm -hmm. online. So how do, you, how do you attract students? And, and do you think that this will change because of the crisis? I don't know, to be honest. Uh, to the, the interesting thing, and I've had this conversation with a lot of people recently, the interesting thing is, of course, that the preparation, it's not the same degree. It is the same degree, but it isn't the same degree. It is the same degree, but it is a different pedagogy. Um, and I do not actually feel any shame for charging the same fee online as we do on campus, because actually, in, in, in actual fact, the workload allocation I get for teaching and developing an online course is twice that I get for an on-campus course. And that is actually realistic because it takes so much more time to both develop a decent online course and to deliver it. Uh, it is significantly more time consuming on the teaching side, on the admin side. Um, and this is because we, we try to do it well. I think. Mm. So uh, there are online courses out there, I'm sure, where this feels more like a correspondence course where you basically get the stuff and you are left to your own devices and study. But this is not how we do it. Mm. Um, we actually do ask, we, we do have, I, as, as a teacher, I have contact with students every week. Mm. Uh, it's asymmetric contact. So it's, there isn't an awful lot of live teaching, which is not because we don't want to do it. In fact, it would be 
probably a time saver if I could just teach for two hours online in the same way as I do on campus. But because we have students from literally every continent bar the Arctic, that is not possible because of the time zone issue. Uh, and we want to be able to provide each of our students the same learning experience. So a lot of the stuff that we're doing is asymmetrical. Students can access the materials in their own time and then their tutors go into the discussion spaces where the, actually the majority of the work happens in, in their own time and it, it, is, you know, it works like that. That means that our online courses are, I think, probably very, very good. I've taught online at other universities and this is definitely the best model I've ever seen and worked with. But it also means it isn't easily transferable to an on-campus cohort for just mm -hmm. one year. Mm -hmm. Not for the workload allocation, because it would essentially double my current workload. Mm -hmm. uh, but also because it really is a different, you know, you, you're serving a different expectation. Mm -hmm. um, and on-campus students, they, I think they do want this face-to-face -face contact with their lecturer they, they want to be in edinburgh they want to have this possibility of speaking to you face to face um and how do we get that in an online environment i think that's the challenge that we're we're dealing with at this point in time so um and how are you doing this i mean as you said that, that you're investing quite some time and, and and thought into this so what is the main instrument that you use is it that you record yourself teaching and then put it into the online environment and and students may ask questions uh, I, and you reply to them or is it is it writing no. or I, I actually look at, I mean, I was in a way lucky that I was on sabbatical and part of my sabbatical tasks was actually the development of a hybrid uh, CPD data protection course. So CPD, mm -hmm. the professional ongoing continuing professional education. Uh, so I was halfway through developing that when this thing hit um, and it occurred to me that because I was teaching for a cohort, I, I was developing this for a cohort that would be on campus for block seminars but would do the majority of work online, that this was a model that I could potentially take over yeah. to the next year. So this is largely what I've done. The way I thought about it was really how can I replicate the way I normally teach on campus in a different way. And uh, so this required me to think about what do I do normally on campus? And we teach on in our postgrad degrees, we teach in seminar groups. So that's about up to 25 people. And we have two hours of face to face teaching a week. And the way I usually structure this is that students have a certain amount of reading to do beforehand that I expect them, you know, to have done by the time we see each other. And the seminar is a mix between me lecturing at them. So it's still frontal teaching. Mm -hmm but with me asking a lot of questions mm -hmm. so there's a lot of student involvement and also uh, i use a lot of group activities so there are sort of natural breaks where i split them into small groups and they talk about something and then we bring it back to plenary mm -hmm. so these are basically now the elements of my online of my new you know hybrid course i i will i have already recorded quite a number of the bits of my presentations that even in an on-campus scenario are frontal teaching so those bits i have uh, recorded. I, I have kept the groups and the group activities and I will put the students in groups mm -hmm. whether they're on campus or not um, and I will ask them to prepare this time before the actual plenary session. I will ask them to go, go into their groups separately before the session. Mm -hmm. And then the sessions will entirely be spent on um, just working through the group activities. Mm -hmm. So 
they still get the different elements, but they get them in different, you know, the, the delivery is in a different way, but the pedagogy probably is very similar to what I've done before. Mm -hmm. And sorry to repeat the question, how do you get students to pay 20,000 pounds for this? I mean, is what is the main reason for a student doing this and not choosing to do it somewhere um, in another cheaper. country? Yes. Uh, to be well, honest, it's, I, I, it's not really cheaper. I mean, if you, yeah. if you compare this with competitors on the continent, it's not yes. really cheaper, right? It might be cheaper if you compare it with Harvard or so. But no, no, no. I, I say, why, why, how do we get to students to yeah. come to us and not go to somewhere cheaper? Yeah, uh, to be honest, I don't actually, I, I ask myself that question as well sometimes. I, um, I think the thing here is that we, um, it's, it's reputation. Uh, that is, has a lot to do with it. And students do definitely look at that, I think. On campus in particular, I think it is the fact that we are Edinburgh, we're number 25 on, on the world QTS mm -hmm. ranking and all of this sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. And I have, I've had a number of students who, who came on campus and I said, you know, why did you come here? Why didn't you go to Amsterdam, to Leuven, to Vienna, to Hanover, you know, all mm -hmm. of the other ones that do very good LLM programs. Um, and it has a lot to do with that. It, the English language, of course, is something. So, you know, because our programs are offered in English by default, uh, in fact, we don't offer any other language uh, other than in the law and language programs. Um, and I <laughs> if I may be so, so, you know, just to repeat what another student says, part of it might be Harry Potter. Uh, because Edinburgh is is renowned for that, and a lot of and, and it is the city actually as well. You know, a lot of students tell us that they would love to come to Edinburgh. They they want to come to Edinburgh as a place. Online, I think the the picture is different in that we are actually one of the few universities, probably in the world, who offer not just this kind of degree, but this kind of degree at this level of quality. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. around the world um, mm -hmm. and we're offering it in in a lot of different modes so we are actually recruiting online a lot of people who are in full-term work mm -hmm. uh, our online cohort is by and large about 10 years older than our on-campus cohort at least and they do um they do full-time work and they study with us for like a third of the time so they do the a one-year degree over three years mm -hmm. And I think that is what makes it possible for us to do this and that it what makes it possible for students to do this as well. Mm -hmm. So the target group then is, is probably those who don't have enough time to invest one full year on campus wherever it might be. Yes. And, and instead of this, then do it remotely because they yes. believe that it will be less time consuming, which is probably not really the case for students either, right? So. Well, I think a lot of students, a lot of our online students come into the program incredibly optimistic. I mean, again, you know, remember, these are people who are generally in their mid to late 30s, early 40s. They've had, they've been around the block. They've actually, the, the, the good thing about it is they are used to a nine hour working day. Um, you know, these are lawyers in practice a lot of the time or IT professionals in practice, and they are used to a full day's hard paid labor. Um, and that is a difference between online students often and, and on-campus students who often come from an educational background where the, where the master's is the next step. 
Um, some of them have some work experience. Some of them have taken years out. But uh, you know, by and large, the on-campus group is is comes from an educational background. Mm -hmm. um, so the online group thinks, oh, I can do this. You know, I I know how to do this. I've studied before. I've worked now. I can do this. And we get a lot of students who apply for the degree on a two-year basis. Um, and after the first semester, move over to a three-year basis because they realize that they can't actually do mm. as much work as we require them to do. Because we do seriously not make a difference. We, we require them to do just as much work as we require our on-campus students to do. And, and we don't give them outs or anything like that. So uh, a lot of the time, they then move to the, to the longest possible mode so that yeah. they can actually combine this with yeah. their work. Yeah, one of the one of the uh, the reasons you told before why people decide to go to Edinburgh was reputation, and you said mm -hmm. uh, that Edinburgh has uh, has reputation as as a selling argument. I would assume that the reputation you are talking about primarily comes from research, not so much from teaching. It's because you have excellent people doing excellent research. Um, and if so, let me ask how, personally, how do you divide your time? Because I would assume organizing such an LLM program in mm -hmm. such a competitive environment under those challenging conditions that we have at the moment is per se a full-time position. And then to add on this, uh, mm -hmm. you know, the, the, the usual research stuff is, 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 is quite, uh, I mean, how do you do this and how do you prioritize things and how does the university prioritize things? It is definitely a challenge. I mean, the reason why we have a relatively generous sabbatical program is essentially that you can't combine, you mm -hmm. know, that level of teaching exposure to um, with with really good research exposure. So the the way the university or my school in particular has started to think about it about five or six years ago is that we try to the general distinction between or the general allocation between research and teaching at a research intensive university in the UK is supposed to be 60% teaching and admin, 40% research. Now, in any normal year where you're in, in teaching and admin, that's not realistic. Um, so what we're trying to do is we try to do this over a five-year period. Um, and we do this by granting um, a one-semester one sabbatical after every four years of teaching, I think, or three years of teaching. And then you can apply if you have a particular research project that you would like to do. You can apply for another semester of what we call directed research time. Now, I don't know if this is a um, a model that will survive, you know, in the long run, because obviously every year that somebody is off, it increases the workload of the colleagues in the team. So it, it's not a, an ideal way of doing it either. But it's the way we've chosen at the moment. Um, so that is one way of, of trying to get some research back into, into the schedule. I do, however, not necessarily think that reputation absolutely means the reputation of the people teaching it. I have my doubts about this. I mean, when you speak to students, of course, they will reassure you that it's you they're there for. Mm -hmm. But I think one of the things that we're seeing currently is that a lot of students feel that if they don't get on-campus teaching or the on-campus experience, they should get a fees discount. That is an argument that a lot of on-campus students are doing. And I saw actually a very interesting thread on Twitter recently where somebody said that they feel that the reason for that is that students do not actually necessarily buy us when they, you know, decide where to study and which degree to take and what university to go to. They buy the package. They buy 
you know, the nice old buildings and the courts and the student bars and all the other stuff that is actually offered, the extracurriculars and, and, and the reputation of the institution. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think when I say Edinburgh is on, is on 25, of course, the way in which this is assessed is by our research. But I'm not entirely sure that students necessarily see it that way. I think a lot of the time it just means that they can, when they apply for jobs, they can say, I studied at a, you know, number 25 institution. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know that, you know, there is such a direct link between us being the research stars and, and you know, students coming to us for that. Yeah. I, I much more think it is more of a, you know, what you can put on your CV afterwards, but also what you can study while you're there. Yeah, but in any case, this hybrid format that you are planning for now for the autumn season will certainly increase the workload of at least those who are new into uh, online teaching. Absolutely. Um, and will will the, the, the amount of staff be uh, raised or are, are those people who are there already expected to simply do a little bit more of work or how? how? I think it's probably a bit of both. I mean, it's certainly going to be, I think we probably um, will need to reduce the number of courses we're offering. That might be one, mm. one way of doing it. Um, Partly, I think we're we're kind of expecting fewer students, particularly at postgrad level. Uh, I think the, the the thinking here is very different at undergrad and postgrad. But at postgrad level, I think we we kind of thinking that there might be fewer students, but we don't know yet. Um, we there will be more work for each of us. There's absolutely no doubt about it. Um, mm. There will probably be some support, but I also think that you know we will be expected to to absorb some of it um, as probably will be you know faculty all over the world uh, in this particular context because ultimately there is an immense financial hit that universities have taken i don't know how the situation is on the continent but because in the uk universities are you know they are quasi-public bodies but they are really private enterprises Uh, and even though we don't charge fees in scotland at undergraduate level we we are still a self-funding institution in a way and a lot of our funding comes from student accommodation it comes from uh, catering it comes from venue hire for conferences and none of that you know there's no income for this since march and there is likely to be no income from the conference side for a very long time there's very reduced income on the student accommodation side because we cannot fill the halls in the same way as we would normally do. So the student, the university is actually facing a real financial impact of this. So I think the money to hire an awful lot of extra staff is just not going to be there. Um, And and, and therefore, yeah, you know, I think permanent staff will be required to absorb quite a lot of the extra work. Yeah. And is there any willingness uh, to to substitute the, the missing money by public funds or public money? Or is it, I mean, or, or is there a risk that Edinburgh will go bankrupt? <laughs> I, 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 well, one would hope not. Uh, it's a little bit like flagship airlines, isn't it? You, you think that some of the universities probably will not be allowed to go bankrupt. And, and mm-hmm. in a way, Edinburgh is probably, you know, might be one of the ones where that might apply. It's not a nice thing to say because it, it you know, it really brings to the fore the, the difference in the way in which universities are, are looked at and viewed, particularly in the UK, you know, in, in terms of old universities, new universities and all of this sort of stuff. But I, I couldn't tell you, you know, ultimately the universities are 
asking very loudly the UK government for additional funding uh, because obviously we are facing a, a double whammy of you know having potentially research funding being cut off because of Brexit. Mm -hmm. um, there is that coming and we knew that that was coming and we were already concerned about that uh, and we had some reassurances that you know some of that money would be replaced by the UK government. But the UK government, like all the other, you know, governments in, in other countries, of course, it will also take a hit. So it, it is a it is a concerning time, I think, for everyone involved. Uh, we, 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 we will do our best. And I think that is, in a way, where, where most of the stuff are coming from. We, we don't want our university to go under. We don't particularly want to, you know, be facing the workload that we're likely facing next year for ever. But uh, for the time being, I suppose everybody probably still in their head thinks about it as, you know, a year we have to get through and then we'll hopefully come out at the other end at some point. Mm -hmm. Is this distinction that you drew before between undergraduate and postgraduate students, so undergraduates mainly national students and postgraduate mainly international students, also true for the faculty teaching? So is the postgraduate faculty more international than the undergraduate? Faculty? No, no, we don't actually have a distinction between undergraduate faculty and postgraduate mm -hmm. faculty. We we generally teach all of it. I think the reason that some of people in my team don't teach an awful lot of undergraduate is that because we don't actually have a necessity. You know, we, we, we it's like we the undergraduate degree is very open. Um, it, we don't have streams or anything like that. It is a very general law degree. The only um, conditions that a law degree in the UK needs to meet is the conditions that the law society, uh, you know, the, the English or the, Amer the the Scottish law society set as a, as a minimum condition for qualifying uh, mm. once you have your law degree. Um, so a lot of the teaching at undergraduate level is for courses that are necessary for what we call a qualifying law degree mm -hmm. and it's only in the later years uh, scotland has a four-year degree uh, unlike england which has a three-year degree so in scotland uh, the final two years which is what we call the honors years you actually have a wider choice of courses um, and you can then to a certain extent specialize but there is no real tranching uh, you know where, where you say okay i'm doing a, an ic law undergraduate degree we don't really offer it in that way so we are relatively free to decide which of our courses we also offer at undergraduate level um, mm -hmm. and that depends often on staffing and what we want to do in terms of course development at either end so in the last few years we have really tried to concentrate on developing new courses as postgraduate level we we have now offered probably in the last two years five or six new courses at that level also with new colleagues coming in and the next step now would have been to think about which of these courses we would now take undergrad to offer as honors courses. But I think that is one thing where COVID definitely is going to have an impact because there's probably not going to be much room for that. So, um, yeah. So, I mean, the reason why I'm asking so stupidly is because I saw the, the faculty of your LLM programs and, and that's an outstandingly international faculty. I saw yes. many, many of the teachers are not from the yes. UK, but <laughs> do have a different national background. Uh, and I would, I, 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 I would assume that that this is not. I mean, this is very obviously uh, to be used in on a postgraduate level, but it's not that obvious to use those people for an undergraduate class, first year civil law, or something. And, yeah, um, you're right. You're yeah. right. 
I mean, I mean, that's probably one of the reasons why I don't teach at ordinary level. Ordinary level are very much the Scottish law courses, you know, mm -hmm. the delict and contract and criminal law. And, and obviously, I have not been trained in that. Uh, I did some teaching in, when I was still in England. I did some teaching on a constitutional law course. Mm -hmm. uh, but that is one of the reasons why I don't do an awful lot of undergraduate teaching. Yeah. And who decides on this? Is it you deciding this or is it the faculty as a whole or? or... It's largely the teams. It's what we offer. And as long as the qualifying law degrees are uh, qualifying law courses are, are covered, the, the teams mm -hmm. are relatively free to offer what they want. And with our specialization in our team, it is quite clear that none of us is any is in any way qualified, you know, to teach on any of these qualifying law courses at, mm -hmm. at ordinary level. So we are we've always been relatively free to focus on the honors level and the postgraduate level. And this is because you bring the money that you cost by by the fees. Right? <laughs> well, more so recently than the beginning. I mean, you know, don't forget that for the very longest time we were a, a very delicate flower that was looked at as a somewhat weirdo existence by you know the majority mm -hmm. of lawyers. I think it's really only in the fast, I don't know, five or six years, I would say, where where our area has has really blossomed and exploded. Um, mm -hmm. So yeah, now I think we are amongst the ones who bring in postgraduate cash, but I don't think it is necessarily, Edinburgh invested in this very early when we were certainly not a cash cow. Um, and I think it was more of a, it was a research thing. Uh, our, a lot of our teaching came from a massive research grant that we, you know, that allowed us to fund, found the script center. That was before my time even. Um, but it was the, the idea that this was important work to be done and this was in a way where the future was going to be. I think that was an understanding that Edinburgh had for a very long time. But yeah. uh, the way in which teaching became self-funding, that is actually a relatively recent um, occurrence, I think, that where we could actually say, okay, we're, we now actually do you know, bring the money in and we do earn our keep and, and all of this. Mm -hmm. I, I have absolutely no idea about how decisions are then made when you say that Edinburgh took the, the strategic decision to, 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 to identify this as an interesting subject. Uh, who exactly is Edinburgh then? Is it? It's, yeah, well, I mean, I think what the difference that we are seeing here is, of course, the very different uh, much flatter hierarchies that you have in the UK mm. academic system um, is very different from the continental European, particularly the German and the Austrian system, where mm. you have a relatively strict hierarchy between the, the professors, the middle bow, the, the younger people, uh, and where, in a way, you have to go through all of these stages to get to that point, mm. uh, where the professors have a, a certain amount of control over their own budgets, but, but where they also are very, you know, limited. I think I, I saw your interview with, with Jeanne when you were talking about, you know, how, how limited the, the mini empires are. Mm -hmm. And I think the UK system isn't very much like this. I don't know if it was like that in the past. It may very well have been. Um, but I think at the moment, we are looking at the faculty as a faculty. It's a school. We have subject areas um, for planning purposes. And those subject areas are as I said, reasonably free to think about what they would like to do in terms of teaching and in terms of research. And I think in, in 2004, there were just a bunch of people who saw the potential of mm -hmm. this, you know, starting something in this area of law. And they made this funding application and they got the money and they started this research center mm -hmm. uh, from which everything else flowed in a way. Um, and, and, and that's kind of how it how it goes in a way over here. You know, you need, you need a few people who just want to build something together and, and 
have the wherewithal to find the money to do it. Yeah, that's the important part, right? To find the, to find <laughs> yeah. the money to do it, I believe. <laughs> absolutely. I, I mean, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and I mean, this will be more stressful, I would assume, in the next years to come for, yes. for, the, whole, for the whole faculty. Yeah. And I would also assume that this will then open the floor for all kinds of discussions and debates about what, what should be prioritized uh, on which level of teaching. And, I and think so, yeah. If it's such yeah. a flat hierarchy, I, I mean, come... I would assume that that would be rather tough to decide then. I mean, every single... It helps that we actually have a very, very nice team that works very well together. So we, we are actually really good at looking out for each other and trying to make sure that everybody gets to do a bit of what they like and everybody mm -hmm. is kind of willing to pitch in with doing a, you know, a little bit of what is maybe more on the harder side of things. Mm -hmm. So from that perspective, it, the, the flat hierarchy works for most of us. Um, it, we will still have to work within the constraints that both the school and the college and the university set us. That, that is another thing. But uh, we, we do have a certain amount of flexibility in, in how we go about achieving and delivering you know, what mm -hmm. we need to deliver. Mm -hmm. And how attractive is it then to, to, to be engaged in those compulsory subjects on an undergraduate level for, for, for a bright academic? I mean, who wants to teach first year law students in torts, for example? Um, uh, yeah, well, I, I suppose, you know, if you are interested in torts, then that's, you know, what, what you do. Right, but, uh, <laughs> and, and there seem to be yeah. people out there who are yeah. indeed interested in teaching uh, those subjects and in doing research in those subjects. So again, so, there is no hierarchy and you sit together and then somebody raises... I, I, to be honest, I don't, I, don't, I don't know because I don't actually work in those teams and I'm not involved no. in this. You would probably okay. have to ask somebody who works in the contract, in, in, the, in the civil law, you know, subject okay. area or in the private law or in the criminal mm -hmm. law mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and how that how they are distributed I, I imagine that there will be you know ways but but again you know it, it's it's a lot of it is about fairness uh, a lot about it is is to you know share exposure and, and share mm -hmm. the burdens and and where I think my school is actually normally quite good at doing that I, I haven't heard of any turf wars you know within particular subject areas about these things yeah but it would be completely unthinkable that somebody would ask you to do something in in civil law next year please because there is somebody is on somebody is on sabbatical and therefore there's a need or so that would be un, impossible nothing is ever unthinkable but I, I, it hasn't happened yet so oh. I, I don't i don't know uh, I, I think the thing is that because we are actually quite we have over the last seven or eight years we have been one of the subject areas with the highest workload uh you know mm -hmm. sort of calculated by number of people on our team we are offering a very high ratio of courses per person so this is one of the things that has in a way safeguarded us from being asked to do anything outside our area mm -hmm. we, we, and, and it, it wasn't a conscious decision we, we largely developed these courses because we ourselves are enthusiastic about teaching them um, but it does mean that we probably each of us teaches more different courses than many other people mm -hmm. who then teach more students on you know, a more limited number of courses. So it's not necessarily as if, you know, people have, a, have an easier time of it. But because we, we have tried to build this program, we, to build this area, to, to build our new courses, we, we have had quite high workload averages compared to some other parts of the school. Yeah. So to me, if I may uh, say this, uh, this looks very much like 
like the team being some kind of a spaceship, right? And there are other spaceships, other teams, and 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 you need to stay within your spaceship and try to look at to be, to be sure that it's that everything is running well there, right? So meaning enough students, enough classes taught, and and then and enough money coming in, and then things are fine. Would that be completely wrong? As a picture? It's not completely wrong, but it's probably not completely my experience either. I mean, what, what is true is that because we were very sort of, I, I want to say self-contained, but because we were very busy with our own stuff, we probably didn't reach out uh, into other, you know, parts of our, our school as much as we mm -hmm. could have done, as we maybe many of us would like to have done. Uh, my colleague Boca Schaefer, who you know as well, I mean, he's one of those chucks of all trades. He's, he has a real history, a real interest in legal history, which is where he comes mm -hmm. from, legal legal philosophy. Um, and, and he misses, I think, the interaction. Um, we also, because of the, you know, our subject area, we, we have links now, we're, we're building these links with the informatics department. Um, our new data science department. So there is a lot of overlap there and, and we really do try to work interdisciplinary and we really do try to reach out. Um, but yeah. as these things often are, I think it's a work in progress and it's it's about how much you want to do and how much you can do, you know, with, given the amount of time that we each of us have in our in our life. Yeah. So then let's change the perspective and go back to the very start of um, of everybody's career at the beginning. So if somebody is 18 today and 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 wanted to this wanted to work as a professor of IT law in 15 to 20 years, what would be the the ideal way to to achieve this goal? Um, well, the ideal way, of course, would be to do a law degree, I suppose. So uh, that's uh, it's different in Scotland and in the UK, uh, in England. So education, like in, in Germany, is a devolved matter. So the systems are slightly different. But um, so we, we offer a four-year law degree as probably the one that most people take. You can do it in three years and you have an, an LLM ordinary, but the majority of people go for what is called an honours degree, which in Scotland involves four years. Mm. Um, if you then want to go into practice, uh, you do another uh, year, which is called the Diploma um, for Legal Practice, and that in Scotland um, allows you to start a training contract. And at the end of that training contract, you become a solicitor. Mm. Um, you can then do extra work and an extra year and become uh, an advocate which is sort of the you know equivalent of uh, a barrister in england so you have mm. court court uh, audience rights so that's that's the legal practice side of things but if you want to stay in academia then you will generally do your undergraduate degree you get your honors degree and then you will probably do a master's um an llm uh, which is hopefully one year and then if you can get funding for it you will do a phd which is another officially three years but the majority of phd students take four years because they used the last year to to write up as we call it um yeah and then you are a, a phd and you're trying to get a job um and, and that is generally where these days i think the problem uh, starts it's quite interesting to see that this has really changed over the, the last 20 years that I've lived in the UK. I mean, I when I moved to the UK, you didn't actually need a PhD to become a university lecturer. I, I myself don't have one. Um, I came to the UK from Germany to teach originally German law. And then I, when I returned, I, um, I did legal practice. But when I went back to academia, I still didn't have my doctorate and I, I got a job as a lecturer. 
that is on its way out, that model. Um, mm -hmm. Because now there are so many students who will have PhDs or will do PhDs or want to become academics. The field is just, you know, for, for junior lectureship positions, it's just really close now and you do require a PhD mm -hmm. to even get a look in. Uh, and it's actually these days almost rare, a little bit like in continental Europe, that you do get a lectureship, a permanent position immediately after you have a PhD. Uh, much more likely is that you are spending a, a few years, however many it will require, on, uh, you know, on a postdoc researcher position on, on some project or other. Mm -hmm. um, until you have amassed enough in terms of publications yeah that would and actually allow you to get a permanent job yeah and uh, I, many questions on this so first one would be uh, are there any students who writing a phd who do not plan to stay in academia so is it is it an... there are but fewer than probably there would be in germany and yeah. in uh, in austria so i think in in germany and in austria this has become a real and we we call it great we call it we you know we're calling grade inflation but i think in germany and austria what mm. we're seeing is degree inflation so when i was a student a doctorate was all, already the sort of thing you needed to have if you wanted to work for one of the big law firms you know they, they already mm. expected you to do that so a doctorate i think in germany even at in the 90s when I graduated was something that wasn't necessarily done with a view to you subsequently becoming a university lecturer. Mm. In the UK that is probably still different. Um, we don't necessarily have that inflation yet that even if you want to go into legal practice you need to have a PhD. Legal practice, in a way I think there is much more mutual distrust between academia and practice. Uh, practice probably would see a four-year PhD as a bit of a, a waste of time where students do some airy-fairy stuff that doesn't really help them much when they finally, you know, get sent into the coal mines of, of you know, yeah, legal practice. And, and what they could be doing in those four years is to get that sort of hands-on experience that you get in the training contract and in your first three years. At the same time, because I spent some time in legal practice myself, I can, I can you know, honestly report on that. Uh, academia isn't that keen on um, people coming in from legal practice either. Um, mm. They would never admit that. And, and on paper, we are always very happy for people to come in and mm. you know, bring a different perspective and stuff like that. But, but really, if you want to hit all targets that you need to hit these days to get a permanent um, you know, lectureship, you don't have time to spend in legal practice. Yeah, it, yeah. it is not because you legal practice will not allow you to publish. Legal practice will not give you teaching experience. Legal practice will not give you the sort of admin background, ac academic citizenship, service sort of experience that you know universities are looking for. So it is not necessarily a very porous system. You you kind of decide after your law degree which way you want to go. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think this is, I mean, this is quite the same also on the continent. I mean, everyone talks about how important it is that people from practice enter the academic field, but in practice, it's very difficult if you have, if you have five or 10 years of practical experience, you didn't publish and you didn't teach. And, and that's something that is obviously important for an academic career. So it's very, very difficult to re-enter academia after after a certain amount of years outside academia, also on the continent, as far as I see it. 
but you also said that it's necessary to um, to have funds for the PhD study. So is it is the typical situation that the PhD student pays the university or that the university yeah. pays the students or both? No, nope, no, nope, the university. Nope. This is very different from the UK, mm. so uh, from the continent. So yeah, mm. our, our our PhD degree is a degree like any others, and we charge mm. for postgraduate education even in Scotland. So when we accept a PhD student, they will be expected to pay us fees. Um, those fees are again not to be sniffed at. Um, and the funding situation is an issue, I think, for many students. It is, I, I personally feel it is quite exclusionary. There, there are a lot of funds that students can apply to, um, sometimes often in, in their own countries. So we get a lot of international students who come with funding from their own countries because an English or an, a, a UK PhD, a Scottish PhD is still seen as as something worth having in, in mm. many other countries. Interestingly enough, the students who find it difficult to get fundings for PhD is UK students, because mm -hmm. the, the UK government has more or less, um, you know, retrieved, re sort of stopped all general funding. The universities themselves provide some funding. Uh, funding councils sometimes do funding, but for instance, we, we even within in the context of UK funded research projects, um, the amount of funding you are allowed to spend on PhD recruitment is, you know, is kind of limited. You can do it, uh, but but it, it needs to be in the context of the of the project overall. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that means that it's very difficult for for people who who have a funding problem to enter academic work. Then, if the, if the PhD is getting more important, it is. To yeah. It certainly is, and I think we see more UK students who are doing a PhD um, part time than we do maybe with other i mean that might just be you know n equals one my own uh, you know experience and stuff but I, I if i can think about which of our students do the phd part-time i can immediately think about two or three from the uk but i can only remember one international one that i've ever supervised on a on a post on a part-time basis and it is more difficult i mean again it it, it seems it seems counterintuitive from a continental perspective because the majority of uh, you know people who are doing a PhD do of course work because they do their PhD as part of their this us position for which they are mm -hmm. paid but it is actually difficult when you're not doing a university job at the same time but when you're maybe you know serving coffees at Starbucks at the same time to put mm -hmm. yourself through your degree or when you're working I don't know in the, in the even in the student union or something like that um, you are not doing the work part of your day in the same environment, you yeah. know, intellectually speaking, as the, the study part of your day, and that makes a real difference. So studying for a PhD as a part-time student is, is hard work, even harder work than full-time, and it, it takes a lot of dedication and a lot of discipline. Mm -hmm. And how attractive is this then to the smartest students? I mean, do, do you think that there will be the smartest people still go into academia or...? <laughs> I mean, I, 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 that is another question entirely. I mean, you know, it depends on, I don't think it necessarily depends on the smart thing. It depends on what you want to do with your life. And academia is, we don't have a, a dearth of PhD students. We don't have a dearth of PhD graduates that want to join academia, which is interesting for those of us who are, you know, sometimes sitting here and remembering how academia used to be and, and, and seeing what it is now. 
Oh, you know, it's a bit like when you're a teacher and your child tells you it wants to become a teacher and you say, oh, don't go there, you know, or mm -hmm. when you're a lawyer and your child says you want to be a lawyer, you know, you, I think mm -hmm. our immediate reaction in a in, in number of professions is immediately to discourage your children from following mm -hmm. your footsteps these days. Mm -hmm. um, and the same goes probably in a way for academia, but it isn't, it is a tempting, it is a seductive field because it is probably the only profession where you have the level of freedom to think the level of yeah flexibility in your life and and that is still a very tempting sort of thing for people who are of are a certain personality type i think mm. so, so it's can... not just smart you know you can be very very smart and just want to be able to earn a lot of money and go to a city law firm but yeah two remarks on this of course it's obviously it's not only a question of smartness however it's not really a disadvantage to have to be smart no, if you want to all. work in academia. No. Uh, uh, and second, I, I mean, coming back to what you told us at the beginning of this conversation, I think this, uh, sorry to say this, uh, this, this image of uh, freedom and, 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 and independence and, and, this, and you as a person decide on what you are allowed, what you are investing your time into, is not really that yeah, true anymore, anymore, right? In particular, yeah. not in in UK universities because it's it's more like a company than 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 a research institution in many ways, right? And I would assume that this is then even not really the best way to achieve and to find those people who you are talking about, which are those who want to have freedom and want to decide and want to be independent and so on. They possibly go into other directions today, don't they? Uh, they, they, they do. Um, but, but, and, and you're right, you know, but being smart is like a precondition, you know, we, mm. we, we take that as granted, mm. that that is that is a thing. But it's a lot if it, whether or not you want to go join academia afterwards or, or go or join a city firm as a solicitor, I think is much of the person you are, um, mm. as well as what you want to do with your life. And, and you're right, you know, this dream of what academia is and, you know, or what academia should be, it doesn't necessarily always map onto what academia is these days. But for me, I mean, I, I always, when I have this conversation with people, I always say being an academic is not something I do. It is something I am. It is, it is very much part of my personality. And every time I think, oh, my gosh, you know, is this really what you want to do with your life, work-life balance? I could probably have an mm -hmm. easier life and earn more money elsewhere. I think of me as a person in that other environment, and I'm just like, nope. <laughs> mm -hmm. and, and I think that, that really, for me, is uh, what makes a lot of, you know, smart individuals go yeah. for academia still. It, there is still something in the essence of the ivory tower that, that lures us in mm. and that lures a certain, uh, you know, kind of people in. Yeah. And we don't, we still seem to have enough of them who want to do that. Mm -hmm. And how open is the system for non-UK citizens like you? I mean, how, has this changed or is it still relatively open? It, I, I think it is relatively open, actually. I mean, the it, it, law is maybe, you know, a, a difficult one to decide because law is so jurisdictional. Uh, so it's mm. it's. But if I look at my, you know, at my fac even at my faculty, my faculty is incredibly international, um, and that is because we have different ways of getting there. You know, my my way of gaining. UK law knowledge was going into practice because I didn't particularly, after spending and doing a German law degree, I didn't particularly fancy doing another four years in the UK. Mm. Um, 
some people come in because their legal systems are quite compa compatible. So the Commonwealth, you know, there is a lot mm -hmm. of, of countries where there isn't really that much of an issue there. Um, and some people just manage to come in because they work in areas where it doesn't really matter. And IT law is, you know, a little bit one of those because so much of the regulation that we're looking at is actually EU. Um, so you can come in from France or from Germany or from Italy and, and talk, teach, you know, debt protection and not necessarily need to translate quite as much into a UK context. Mm -hmm. But um, if you're looking at other departments, I think the UK system is actually very open, much more so than probably the German system, which has a very specific idea of what you need to have done before you even get a foot in the door. Um, and if you haven't fulfilled those criteria because the, uh, the ability to do so wasn't even present in your country, then it's very difficult to get into the German academic system, um, yeah. you know, and, and that is different in the UK, definitely. Yeah, yeah. So if, if I were a 22, 25 year old German um, um, assessor, so after my second state examination, and I and my dream was to become a university professor in the UK, I would probably need to, to do an LLM there first, and then a PhD, and then try to enter uh, the market, the labor market, just like, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. And you may still want to do that, because if you are one of the lucky ones, um, you know, at the other end of that track, you get flexibility and freedom and you know the ability to do your own research much earlier than you would get it in germany or in austria yeah and i think um, that i mean that was certainly one of the reasons why i returned to the uk after yeah. my second state exam but on the other hand when you are more senior then you you still work on your own right so it's not really a team that works for you or no and yeah no you don't have elves not in the same way as you you know you don't mm -hmm. you don't actually then you you will potentially you know you have younger junior people working with you if you have funding you know in mm -hmm. context of research research projects and stuff like that but um i don't think the, the uk universities at least not the older ones i don't think they're quite set up in the way where that is the norm yet that may change in the future we, we may be much more required to you know eat what we kill and and, and get funding in and, and grow our teams that way but it, it is not necessarily the way in which things were done historically i think that that is still a little bit um, but I'm, I'm talking about this from the perspective of a grand old dame of a university that i've been working for for the past 10 years yeah but that, that, uh, i think that this, this decision is rather difficult to make than if, if I were you and I would need to decide on whether I invest my time now into writing a, a research proposal for a European project with, I don't know, a 5% success rate and probably I will never get it and uh, or write another book uh, with my name on it and uh, all the reputation coming with it. Uh, it will not be very easy to convince me that I should do the first or should choose the first option, right? And, and that is, I think, something that UK universities are starting to grapple with, you know, and yeah. because that that is, of course, you know, we, we haven't necessarily seen research as a funding stream. You know, mm -hmm. research was the the high aim and objective of, of universities. And there hasn't been, at least in the old universities, there hasn't been the same amount of pressure on people to to do that and that allowed people to do 
more work in terms of research. However, of course, money is at a premium everywhere. And I think the, the, what the last 10 years have shown is that what we are now instead asked to do is to do more teaching. So we're, we're required to bring the money in some other way. And I think if, if you are asking a lot of people, you know, how would they prefer to do this, they might actually prefer to write the odd funding grant, but teach teacher courts less because the funding grant at least, you know, the funding funded project might at least then allow them to do the sort of research that they're interested in doing. Mm -hmm. But it is, it is definitely a, a slightly different atmosphere. But again, I, I always have to stress that this is me speaking from the position of, of high privilege working for a very old university. There are a lot of universities in the UK, you know, that that, that does not apply to who are, mm -hmm. and, I, and I've worked for some of them who are just as much under pressure, where, where, where academic staff are just as much under pressure to, you know, write grants and bring money in as they are on the continent. Yeah, yeah. And has Brexit changed anything in the attractiveness of the position for, for my German young student wishing to go to UK probably it has right so or or you've got will. to ask the German young student I mean yeah. it, it certainly changed the minds of a lot of us who are already working here I think we have definitely already seen a bit of a drain brain drain back into the continent quite a lot mm -hmm. of people have decided that they don't want to take the risk uh, I, I'm certainly you know it's something that is always in your mind. I'm not saying that I'm thinking about it, but it's it's something in your mind where you just have to say, okay, we, we have to see how this goes. But of course, once, because the systems are reasonably different, once you are in the UK system, it's not actually that easy to go back if you're an academic. So as I said, I never did the PhD because I didn't need to while I was in the UK, but that now also would prevent me from going seamlessly back into a German university. It wouldn't give me a job. You know, with all the experience I have, they, I would not tick that box, so I wouldn't get a look in. That doesn't apply to other people. There are lots of academics here from the continent who have their PhDs and who might easily be able to to do that. But mm. it, there is a lot of friction between the systems. I think that makes it more difficult to to change trajectory once you commit it up to a certain level in one system rather than the other. Mm. Mm. Yeah, which makes it certainly difficult to switch to, to move back then. And I see, I mean, I see both tendencies. I see people from the UK trying to come back to the continent. And I also see others who decide actively to stay in academia there, um, yeah. trying to survive uh, the changes to come. Uh, uh, yeah, uh, so that is, uh, I mean, this is this is very academic now. The last minutes <laughs> yes, were very absolutely. academic and, and possibly not all of our uh, listeners and all of <laughs> our viewers are, are, are academics. So perhaps uh, to wrap this up, uh, if I may, Judith, uh, let me ask you a very simple question, which is the typical job interview question, right? <laughs> Okay. Is how would you think our profession to look like in three years after all this COVID-19? Um, our profession. I call it episode, right? So what will you or me do in three years? Our profession lawyers or our profession academics? Being an academic teaching IT law. Okay. Um, I think one of the things that, uh, you know, will probably it will probably do is to jumpstart a lot of people into taking <clears throat> online delivery in teaching more serious. Um, and, and actually that applies even to me because this new way of teaching that I've now devised for my on-campus course next year, when I, when I started thinking about it, I actually thought, 
I could continue doing that, you know, mm -hmm. just with the plenary, continuing to deliver the plenary in person in the room, but keeping everything else as it is. And it might actually, pedagogically speaking, the better way of doing it. It also would allow flexibility in, you know, what is uncertain and un uncertain future. So I think some of the things that we will develop in the next year may be there to stay because we realize this is actually a good way of doing it. This is actually an improvement of the way we did this before, you know, so we might be shaken out of what has just been a very comfortable existence for a long time because we did it the way we always did it and now we have to do it differently and we might find out that sometimes differently is better. Mm -hmm. I personally don't think that we're going to go you know, online by default. Uh, I think there is something about the personal interaction uh, mm -hmm. between teachers and students that, that will be there to stay um, and, and that is definitely something. I'm also not one who is necessarily thinking that law as a discipline is going to be fully technified. And, and that is, you know, a discussion that is better to have with my colleague Burkhard Schaefer, because he always talks about, you know, the things that law cannot, or, or that technology cannot replace in, in, mm -hmm. in human intellect and, and stuff like that. So I think there is still, particularly in the academic thinking, room for the person, you know, for the human in the loop rather than just the technology. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But I think it might on the negative side also mean that we will probably be forced to do a lot more things mediated by technology for cost reasons, because some of these things might actually, you know, universities might find that doing it this way is cheaper. And of course, that is a, is a real way of looking at it and that and that's a bit of concern i suppose that many of us have at this point in time so there is a, a lot of thinking about okay if i if i record all my lectures now am i making myself redundant because you know you could essentially play those on a loop for the next three years until they need updating and then you could pay somebody to update them and re-record them mm. and that's a one-off investment if students were willing to to do that if students were willing to see this as education then that would be a possibility. I don't think it will necessarily happen in, in my university, but I think it may be happening in mm. universities where yeah. online education has a different, gets a, will get a different connotation than from what, what we in our ODL degrees, for instance, have always felt it, it should be. Mm. Mm. How important are students in this game? Do they, are they a factor I mean, to in, on the market and on the developments that you're describing? So in, in your day-to-day -day life, I mean, at the moment, do, they, do students have, or does students' opinion have an impact on, on how your university develops distance learning or is it? Uh, yeah, very much so. And I mean, it has, they have the, it's very clear that they have an impact on, on our decision to offer this hybrid model. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, purely from a safety perspective in a pandemic, it would be, the common sense thing to do would just to say for next year we're going to go online and there's nothing anybody can do about it but the yeah. the, the decision to actually offer this hybrid model is very student driven because the fear is that students will not go for this purely online delivery um, so I think it is, you know, the student voice is being heard in this very much so, even though it may not always come across like this and I think it will be heard going forward but I think what, what is important for me to say here, and I come back to this again, and I say this with my you know, ODL program director hat on, online education doesn't have to be worse. But in order for it to be equivalent or you know, just as good or even better in some cases, 
depending on what stage in life you are at. Mm. It needs a different way of thinking. You know, the pedagogy is very different. And if you, if we really wanted to be better, you know, or, or move more of our teaching online, then I think that would have a real impact on the pedagogy that we are using in that context. And I'm not sure that universities have necessarily understood that yet. Um, and, and that, in a way, is, is going to be interesting to watch. Yeah, I'm not sure either, but I'm also not sure whether students have understood that because they don't know the other concept, yeah. right? They are, that's true. Uh, that's true. Yeah. And I think that's the interesting thing with, um, you know, the higher age of our online students. For them, they do this because um, this just fits their situation in life at this point mm -hmm. in time. Um, mm -hmm. And But actually, we have almost entirely good feedback from those students. Not a single one of them has ever come to me and said, I really regret not doing this on campus. Albeit that a lot of people probably would have preferred to do that if they'd just been able to afford taking a year off and, and moving to yeah. another country and taking their family with them and stuff like that. But, yeah. but this was a really good way for them to do that. Um, and they, they felt that they got what they paid for in, many, in, in most cases, I think. So we'll have to see how this goes with and but if you go if you are younger if you do want to study on campus because also of the experience of living in a different country of immersing yourself in a different culture i think that will still remain the case and the question then is you know if you're already there and your lecturer is there why should you then do stuff online so if we wanted to do that in the future i think we would have to have a good reason for it yeah, one of the reasons could be because it's risky not to do it, right? <laughs> I mean, that, that is the thing, yeah. So, is, <laughs> uh, or, uh, uh, I mean, there are many other reasons, but what yeah. I mean, but that's the most obvious one, I think. Right? At the so, moment, uh, definitely. At the moment, yeah. at least, yeah. yeah. And so, I'm, I, I find it very interesting, by the way, that uh, the I completely share your your view that students are important on this, but I don't hear them in a way, right? So I mean, I hear a lot of assumptions of senior academics about what students might think, think. about developments, mm. but I, at least in the universities I'm more familiar with, it's very di difficult to identify some kind of common voice of the students, whatever they are. And, I think you've got to go to on you've got to go on social media for that. You know that that is, and and I agree with you. I mean, I've I've said myself myself in discussions we've had. You know, can we at least do a survey and find out what students mm -hmm. actually want? Can we at least figure out how amenable they would be to going fully online in semester one, all of before we make these decisions based on a number of assumptions? But uh, it, I think it is true, and, and I've heard from on social media. I've seen quite a lot of students say things like, "Oh, you know, if I'm if I'm only taught online, I want a fees discount." And there are calls for that, official calls by the student unions for that. So there is very clear that there is a misunderstanding by many mm. students of what online teaching would actually involve. They just basically think, oh, you know, all we're giving them is a is a video. Um, yeah. and, and a they Which don't the see them like last year or two years exactly before, and, and and the first of it they don't see the amount of work that goes into doing that mm. video but also they don't see that if it's done well we don't just give them a video if it's yeah. done well there is going to be some sort of live follow-up there is going to be a thinking behind the pedagogical strategy yeah. and i think we need to be better at, at selling that as well mm. um, yeah. to to get that yeah that's a good motto, probably, for yes. ending this debate. But I won't do so before asking you, Judith, whether there's anything that I should have asked you that you would like to. 
No, I don't think so. I, I've, I've just, you know, it's a really good idea to do this because I think it's been brilliant. I mean, I've watched two of them now already, just out of out of interest, um, to see what other people are saying in other countries. Yeah. Because I think we are all in a way in the same boat. So it's, it's a brilliant, it's a brilliant resource that you're putting yeah. out there, and I hope lots of people watch it. Thank you, thank you so much, Judith. Uh, thank you for your time. You. I really appreciate this, and I do hope that the next year um, in of academic life in Edinburgh will be very, very fruitful and very. Uh, rewarding in everything that you will do. Thank you so much. Thank you to our audience. Uh, all of you, please stay safe, stay healthy, and join us next time. Have a good day. Thank you. Thank you. Bye.